This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. We live in a world of illusion, and it's a desperate time. Over the past few hundred years, we have become gradually more and more addicted to material until finally, like caterpillars, we are literally eating our planet to death. Well, what does that have to do with today's guest? We shall find out in a moment. We have Richard Sclove with us. Richard's new book, incredible and dynamic and powerful, is called Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. That hidden madness is a place where you live and I live, we all live, and we're going to try to explore how to escape from it today, to first dimensionalize it and understand what it is, where are we trapped? And then to go beyond that and explore some ideas about how to get out of that trap. Richard has been a senior staff member at the Mind and Life Institute, which was co-founded by the Dalai Lama. He earned his PhD in political theory at MIT. He held a postdoctoral fellowship in economics at the University of California. Uh, he has been honored by the American Political Science Association for his book, Democracy and Technology. And he is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And despite those heavy duty credentials, he's also terribly interesting and fun to talk to. So Richard, welcome to Dreamland. Thank you, good to be here. Well, good. Uh, let's start by talking about what Maya's Palace is. And why don't you begin? Because Maya's Palace, folks, is something in, in one of the, probably the single most extraordinary text mankind possesses. It's called the Mahabharata. And some of you may know the Mahabharata. Some of you in this on this show, I wouldn't be too surprised if quite a number of you have read the whole Mahabharata uh, and certainly parts of it. Um, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about your, first about what the, let's just start simply, what is the Mahabharata? <laughs> the Mahabharata is a, an ancient Sanskrit myth uh, out of ancient India, and it's sometimes described as one of the world's longest books. It's, it's uh, total length is about seven times the length of the Odyssey and the Iliad put together. And it's basically a, you know, a giant epic about a war. And it's sort of what goes on before the war, the war and what happens after the war. Uh, but uh, there's a, a key episode in it called, uh, that involves a, a palace of illusion called Maya's Palace. And I use that as a metaphor for describing things we don't understand about our own society in the modern world. The only the other thing I'll say about the Mahabharata in terms of people perhaps being able to relate to it is there's another ancient Indian text that's better known in the Western world called the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, uh, figures prominently in the new Oppenheimer film because Oppenheimer was very taken with the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is a tiny section of the giant epic that's the Mahabharata. So in the West, the Bhagavad Gita is the part of the Mahabharata that's best known. Now, it's interesting that it would be. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why it is? Uh, it, Bhagavad Gita, I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I think a lot of people in the West have read it, but I've been understandably, I think, intimidated by the whole enormous journey, although I have read significant parts of it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gita? Well, the, the Gita <clears throat> works, though it's a, a, a section of this giant epic, it works quite well as a standalone text. It's only, in English, it's only typically about 80 pages long. 
It's basically a dialogue between a warrior named Arjuna and uh, his charioteer named Krishna. And it, it, this dialogue takes place as a, a giant battle is about to begin. And Arjuna has reservations about fighting in this battle because on the other side are relatives and elders he has a lot of respect for. And Krishna wants to explain to him why it's his duty as a member of the warrior caste to engage in this battle. And uh, he proceeds, though, to give Arjuna wonderful instruction in three paths of yoga, of, of spiritual self-realization. And, uh, and then tops it off by saying, uh, you know, Arjuna, you think of me as your charioteer, but I've been keeping a secret. I'm also the god who creates and destroys the universe. And in case Arjuna has trouble believing that, Krishna manifests himself as the entire as the creator and destroyer of the cosmos, which Arjuna can handle for about 30 seconds and then said, okay, that's enough. That's as much as I can handle. So that's that's basically the Bhagavad Gita. Very, very interesting that that would be the part that is of such is so popular in the West. Well, the, the other thing about it, while it's on the surface, it's a story about a warrior who's not sure he wants to engage in what will in what will be a very destructive battle. It's widely uh, the it's widely read as an allegory of the struggle between the ego, the less the smaller self, and the soul for supremacy in an individual person. So this war is kind of a understood as a metaphor for the struggle for spiritual self-realization. And that's that's the basis on which it's become popular. Now, let's back up a bit and talk about how it is that they have come to this battlefield, which is the most striking part of the story, in my opinion. So tell us a bit about the, the beginnings, the days and weeks before battle, which I believe involves a rather unfortunate dice game. Yeah, um, and it's it's these period before the battle that I'm going to that I, I'm going to use as a lens for going on to explore what might have gone wrong with modern civilization. But uh, the basic setup for the entire Mahabharata is it's based it's the story of five brothers, one of whom we've already met, this warrior named Arjuna. But the central figure is his oldest brother Yudhistra who was a young king at the beginning of the story. And uh, early on in this epic story about what the life of these five brothers who will be in, eventually involved in a terrible war, um, they, Yudhistra, the king, the eldest of the five brothers conceives the idea that he wants to become emperor of the known world. And his brothers sally forth, conquer all the surrounding kingdoms and far-flung kingdoms they can hear of, and very shortly, he basically succeeds. And he's poised to become the king of all kings. And uh, he's going to have a formal ceremony that will install him uh, as this emperor of the known world. And just before that ceremony takes place, uh, his envious cousin named Diodna uh, challenges him to a dice game. And Yudhistra is an the king Yudhistra is an unusual figure for a Westerner as a central hero because he's got brothers who are great warriors, but Yudhistra's real commitment in life is to understand moral duty and how to fulfill it. And so he's not a dramatic character in our normal sense. He's a figure who's struggling for moral understanding and, and moral perfection. And he's very self-composed and righteous. And suddenly when he's invited by his envious cousin, Diodna, to a dice match, he seems to lose his normal character. And um, he, become, he manifests all of a sudden a terrible gambling addiction and uh, proceeds there 21 throws of the dice. And he loses everyone in a row to escalating stakes, finally losing his entire kingdom and being forced with his brothers and their communal wife into exile. And all of this takes place in a magnificent palace called Maya's Palace. Um, and the way I reinterpret the epic, um, 
that whole dice match is a bit of an illusion. Maya's palace is a palace, secretly a palace of illusion, um, because we think that the, the, the heroes think that Yudistra is the king of all kings, and readers of the epic normally you know, take it for granted he's the king of all kings. But this dice match actually reveals that um, that's an illusion in the sense that when he develops this terrible gambling addiction, and even though it's clear that the game is rigged after he's, you know, loses seven, eight, nine, throws the dice in a row, he still can't stop himself from gambling. He's out of control. And if he it can't even escape the control of his own emotions, then he's not really sovereign of anything. It's his addictive emotions that are running the show. So it's actually an illusion that he's king of kings. In, in, matter, in fact, he's not the king of anything. And so I sort of make the argument that when he loses the, the dice match and is thrown into exile, that's actually a good thing because he's being exiled from a palace of illusion that was holding him stagnant from his journey of self-realization and perfection and understanding uh, morality. It's a very interesting situation for him to be in because uh, he, this palace, where, it, you know, I see this palace as being the ego or the world. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, as our world has become more and more materialistic, it's as if uh, Maya's palace has become larger and larger until it's like the labyrinth that Conosus in uh, Crete that uh, Theseus couldn't find his way out of without uh, Ariadne's thread. But we don't have an Ariadne's thread. We're wandering around in here. And the more we eat the world, the more unstable it becomes until finally, like it or not, we're headed toward being kicked out of the palace altogether. And not, now, not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way at all. Not at all. No. I mean, I just uh, flew into Los Angeles a short time ago uh, in the into the teeth of a hurricane. I tried to avoid the storm and, and, and changed my flight. The storm promptly sped up, and I ended up coming in to the hurricane, and it was perfectly okay. And as I was flying in there was also an earthquake and uh there are storms all over the world and years ago i wrote a book called superstorm that predicted that this would happen and it was of course scorned uh but we are in a situation where maya's palace is trembling around us how did richard how did we end up here you have such an interesting book material in your book about the rise of materialism and in the industrial world how did we end up in maya's palace yeah well just backing up a little bit for a second to the mahabharata when yudhistra aspires to become the king of kings up until then he wasn't concerned with power and wealth he was concerned with figuring out his moral obligations in the world and how to better fulfill them. But in Maya's palace, he becomes uh, abnormally strongly ego identified. Um, he's, um, and that leads him to, uh, the, the ego is basically the way I interpret it is the, the process of uh, you know, perceiving ourselves as a small little separate me cut off from uh, psychologically and materially from everything around me. Um, and it's based, the ego is basically the process of unconsciously erecting a boundary that keeps us sense bound off from the world. And when we're cut off from the world, we feel empty inside. And in Yudhistra's case, it leads him to insatiable craving for power and wealth, which then gets even worse and becomes an uncontrollable addiction. And um, to some extent, I think that's what's happened in the modern world. There's features of, um, of how the world has evolved over the past few centuries that have made us more strongly ego identified, more cut off from one another in the sense that we're a bound little self. And therefore, 
more craving for things outside of ourselves, which leads to the materialism that you've described as the modern Maya's palace. But um, where this gets going um, historically um, is about 400 years ago uh, with the birth of global capitalism. And I, I uh, stumbled onto it by um, taking note of something that historians have been aware of, but haven't uh, reflected on what it what it implies about the kind of people we are. Um, you know, if you look about the, the early period of the birth of capitalism and uh, the role, central role of Northwest Europe, of uh, England and the Netherlands and parts of France and bringing this about, um, you, you see two things happening simultaneously. Um, for one, you, for the first time, begin to get a mass consumer society in which instead of being kind of content with subsistence economies that meet basic needs, suddenly lots of people are running around buying lots of stuff and trying to figure out how to get enough money to be able to do that. So there's a sudden spike in kind of consumer insatiability. It's born for the first time. And at the same time that's going on, um, there's a massive increase in the consumption of addictive substances. If you look at the pre-industrial global economy, a, a very substantial part of it is moving addictive stimulants around the planet. So that in fact, the pre-industrial North Atlantic slave economy was substantially directed towards producing uh, addictive substances. So they were, growing sugar in the Caribbean, tobacco in Virginia and the Carolinas, and coffee in Brazil, and making rum from the sugar. And this was catering to newly emerged addictive cravings that had come about in Europe. And, uh, you know, my insight, economy, I mean, historians have known there was a, you know, a simultaneous birth of consumerism and that it included a big an increase in the consumption of addictive substances, but they haven't put it together with what we now know about the psychology of addiction, which is that addiction is understood as a, some kind of disorder in psychological development. And it occurred to me that if you have two forms of intense craving emerging in the same place at the same time, meaning mass consumer insatiability emerging at the same time as addiction, and it if addiction is understood as a developmental disorder, maybe consumer insatiability is a disorder in psychological development as well. Well, I and, think it is exactly that. Uh, yeah. We're going to have to take a brief break and we'll be right back. My new book, Them, has now been out since March of 2023. I would like to thank everyone for the wonderful reception those who have read it, who have posted thoughtful reviews on Amazon, those who have listened. It's an important book for me. And also, over the months, it has become a very strange book because if you listen to the Oversight Committee UAP hearings, you will hear David Grush saying things that almost sound like they were taken right out of the second part of them. And I thought to myself, how did I do that? The answer is, I have no idea. But the book is really very prophetic. And I think you should read it if you hadn't done so. And that's what this is all about. Read it, listen to it. It's really worth your time. Jacques Vallée certainly thought so. Mitch Horowitz thought so. Jeff Kripal thought so. Leslie Kane, Diana Pasolka, and all of the others who gave it blurbs thought so. And so do an awful lot of people who have reviewed it. So pick up a copy today. Go to Amazon and get a copy. Go to Audible and get the audio book. Listen to them. Read them. It's a whole new vision of how we should think about the close encounter experience. And this is getting more and more important over time. More and more important. Them. I saw the future when I was writing that book. Didn't know I would, but I did. You can read it now and see for yourself. Today on Dreamland, we're talking to Richard Sklove. His book, Escaping Maya's Palace, 
decoding an ancient myth to heal the hidden madness of modern civilization. His website is richardsclove.com. Uh, you can go on his website to explore his fascinating extra extracurricular activity as a photographer and also to get deeper into his books and his work in general. And let's now move a little bit back to the, and I, I dread trying to pronounce it because I, I always get these things wrong, but my listeners are used to that. Back to the Mahabharata. Yes? No. Mahabharata, but it's Mahabharata. Like okay. I'm gonna I'm trying to get it right. I, I want to get it right. <laughs> Mahabharata. And um you get into the this idea early in the book of the it is a that it is a psycho-spiritual allegory. Now and it as you I read it, I was amazed at the incredible insight into the human psyche that it represented because it's old. How old is it? Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> roughly two thousand years old, and it's like a number of texts, ancient texts out of the Hindu and Buddhist worlds that uh, and and this the you know the sufi islamic mystical world as well that you know millennia ago there were sages in various cultures who figured out things about psychological development that our society is still struggling to comprehend i thought it was quite amazing can you tell us a little bit about uh, in the, the way the text reflects stages of psycho-spiritual development because it offers a pathway out of Maya's palace. It offers a kind of freedom that we are desperate to, we're desperate for this now. We're desperate. We have to, we have to escape the addiction or the planet's going to die. I mean, it could not be more desperate than this. So tell us a little bit about the way it relates to the stages of psycho-spiritual development. Well, the, the way I interpret it, the, the Mahabharata, this giant epic, it's divided into 18 volumes. And I interpret those as 18 stages in psychological and spiritual development. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating about it, I mean, the, there it, it privileges the development, moral, adult moral development. That's really the metric it's using to uh, uh, assess the progress of the protagonist towards perfection and understanding and fulfilling moral obligations. Now, now uh, when you say adult moral development, yeah, can you define that for us? Well, what they do in the book, it's a progression that's not entirely different from what modern moral uh, moral development theory would say. I mean, early on, the uh, the five protagonists' understanding of morality is primarily their understandings of their moral obligations to their extended family, and uh, and then when in the Bhagavad Gita, which happens in volume six of the 18 volumes that we've, we've already discussed, um, that's when Krishna is telling Arjuna, it's time to move on from your moral obligations just to your family, to your wider responsibilities as a member of the warrior caste. And uh, then after the, this terrible war occurs, it's an 18 day war in in the course of which several million soldiers die and only 11 combatants survive. And at the end of that war, which uh, in volume 12, um, Yudhistra, the, the young king, uh, is feeling terrible remorse about uh, this, this cataclysmic destruction of human life. And he goes on to explore, you know, moves past just caste responsibilities as a as a ruler to uh, exploring higher ethical principles such as uh, the duty to do perform acts for the benefit of all society. And um, if you want, I could tell a little story about what at the end of the epic, what uh, perfection in 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 
um, moral intuition looks like. Yeah, oh, please, please definitely do that. Yeah. Uh, there's a beautiful, a beautiful story at the very end of the Mahabharata where the five brothers, uh, including Yudhishthira and Arjuna, have uh, relinquished their kingdom and they're taking a final journey up to the top of the Himalayas. And as they're going along, a stray dog finds them and, and trails with them. And this is um, the dog is an unusual animal in Hinduism. Hinduism uh, reveres lots of animals as uh, almost deities. There's a monkey god named Hanuman and Ganesha is a famous elephant-headed god. But dogs are not held in high regard in ancient Hinduism because they're, uh, they'll eat anything and they're considered non-discriminating and, and therefore impure because they don't distinguish between pure and impure foods. So this animal that's considered like a stray mutt and quite impure, low in the spiritual hierarchy of the Hindu imagination follows along. And one by one, Yudhishthira's four other brothers die on their way up the, to the top of the Himalayas. And this is the, <clears throat> really because the five brothers represent different aspects of a single psyche. And we're moving towards uh, kind of away from duality and multiplicity into unity and, and Yudhistra, the parts, the other parts, the brothers fall away and it's just Yudhistra. <clears throat> and he gets to the top of the Himalayas and the gate of heaven and Lord Indra, who's the king of the gods, comes out and says to Yudhistra, you can enter heaven now, but lose the dog. And up until this point in his life, Yudhishthira has always wanted to know, you know, wanted to do the right thing, but he struggled to know what that is. And he's always talking to the people around him to try to figure out what his moral obligations are. He's talking with Krishna, he's talking with his brothers, talking with their wife, talking with various sages, and he's trying to always work it out. And now he's at the gates of heaven, and the king of the gods has told him the right thing to do, enter but lose the dog. And without thinking about it, without talking to anybody, despite what the king of the gods has told them, Yudhishthira says, I can't do it. I can't desert this animal, another living creature. It's not my dog, but all dogs, I mean, all ant creatures deserve equal respect. And so God, you're wrong. I'm not going to abandon this dog. Instead, I'll forsake my entry into heaven rather than do that. And at that moment, this impure animal, the dog, transmutes into Lord Dharma, who is the god of morality. And uh, it's a it's a beautiful teaching that the that divinity, if you're looking with the right eyes, with divine eyes, divinity resides even in the most impure features of the world. And with seeing the impure dog uh, as uh, Lord Dharma. Uh, it, and and realizing that he, you know, siding with the dog against the king of the gods, Yudhishthira at that moment has perfected moral intuition. He's seen without talking with anybody what his moral obligations are and does the right thing despite what the king of the gods has told him. And with that, Lord Indra says, okay, now you can enter heaven. And my wife, Anne, was a, a great had a great affection for dogs. And she used to tell a wonderful story about dog. I believe this must have been a, it might be a, it was a story from the Native American traditions. I think it might have been Sue, but I'm not, I don't remember. It was that God decided that humans and, and animals were so very different that he would build, create a great divide between them. And he opened up a, a, a great canyon and with all of the animals on one side and man on the other, and just at the last moment, dog jumped across to be with man. <laughs> and she also used to say, when I asked her, my wife was, my listeners know what she was. She was quite an extraordinary human being. And uh, I asked her once, what is compassion? And I think it very much relates to what you just said. Her response was very simple and not direct. She said simply, each of us is all we have. And when you think of that and him looking down at that dog and knowing that the dog's situation is exactly the same as his, that dog is all he has. And he either goes with 
the king or he does not right now. I understand this very well. I think it's an extremely moving story. But how do we enact it in our lives, Richard? How, what in our lives? Because our lives are offering us all the time situations where we can either push the dog aside or accept the dog. Well, of course, at the individual level, we can you know, struggle to decide, like you distro, what at any moment, what is my moral obligation? And will I let that take precedence over you know, my private inclinations about what would be fun <laughs> at the moment? Yeah. Or um, what would be maybe even necessary? Because quite often, I mean, this world is filled with the blood of those who were victims of, of others' necessity. Uh, the German people in the form of the Nazis decided it was necessary to kill all of the Jews. Yeah. And what about, well, you know, speaking of necessaries, we've come to the end of this particular segment, free, free Dreamlanders, free listeners. And so please listen up and enjoy these commercials very, very profoundly and act on the, their attempts to lure you. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it, a new world? It doesn't mince words. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly like it is, and it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future. I choose the future. A new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with two contactees who had an 11-day close encounter experience and are now willing to speak about it, really, for the first time. To hear their whole interview and many others, subscribe to unknowncountry.com. Here's the excerpt. Did you see the man's face? Yes. Uh, actually, that one is very clear to me. It was kind of longish, and uh, he didn't look... He didn't look completely human, but he because he had very, very thin hair, almost non-existent, but he was young. I believe that it was kind of blonde. And he was very tall, like six, at least six feet. And he was so thin that he looked kind of strange. And what happened then? Well, he wanted me to to go with him or to stay with him. He wanted me to stay with him on the ship. And I'd been married for six months, and I wasn't about to go running off to stay on the ship. Now, surely you want more. You must want more. And there is more, not only this contactee interview, but many others, many of them just as extraordinary on unknowncountry.com, plus everything else that we offer, my audiobooks, the meditations, the talks on the key, William Henry's wonderful revelation show and its entire run, Ann Streber's brilliant and magical mysterious powers, and so much more. 
hours and hours of listening pleasure. Learn from the meditations on the site. Really learn because they're real and they're valuable. Subscribe to unknowncountry.com right now. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on the subscribe tab. We are running very low on new subscribers now, and that should not be. It should not be happening. So you do it. You go there and you do it today. We're talking to Richard Sclove. Richard's new book is Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. His website is richardsclove.com, where I believe you can buy the book through the website, can't you? Yeah, or you can also go, <clears throat> the book has a website too, which is escapingmayaspalace.com. Ah, escaping it's very worthwhile because Maya's palace is more, it, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very appealing and deceptive illusion, but it's also an incredible weight. Being in Maya's palace is like carrying a great load of rocks on your back, which you think are something quite wonderful until you drop them. And how do we drop them? How do we? Get out of here. Well, <clears throat> you were asking me a moment ago about what we can do in daily life. To yeah, that's right. Well, I'm sort of continuing on that. Yeah, theme. I mean, but uh, my answer initially was just, you know, you can try to be moral, but that's not the answer that I'm pursuing in the book. That's talking about what you can do as an individual in your daily interactions. But I'm looking in the book more at the macro social forces that over the past few centuries have made us more intensely ego-identified and more, in, more in, uh, insatiable as consumers than humans have previously been. And uh, I identify several major forces that are responsible for this. One is the disruptiveness of global capitalism as, as firms are continually competing for new products. They're putting old businesses out of business and uh, generally, the operations of the of the global political economy have tended to weaken our social relations, the stability of communities, and our experiential integration into the worlds of nature and spirit. And this uh, constant disruptiveness of capitalism has an effect on our psychological and moral development and makes us more intensely uh, egotistical than is, I think, normal throughout history. And that's a strong claim, but I, I provide evidence for it in the book. And, uh, yeah. and uh, so it's, you know, and, and then the also along with the disruptiveness of capitalism, there's the strong inequalities that go along with it that make those who are at the bottom of, of the socioeconomic hierarchies more susceptible for, to the disruption. And, and then there are modern technologies that also have the effect of experientially tending to separate us from strong face-to-face -face social relations and experiential engagement with nature. So in order to become more moral, I think we'd ultimately have to look at the, the social forces uh, that are, that uh, have been making us more ego, strongly ego identified and take steps to dampen down those forces. Well, I think that one of the things that that is happening, of course, is the internet, which has a number of effects. First is it artificially amplifies egos. In other words, if you go on Facebook or YouTube, or you might only have or twi Twitter or whatever it's now called, Y, Z, <laughs> In any case, you go on any of those things and you can put it out there as if you were a cultural, a center of cultural force, even though you may only have 12 followers on Twitter, yeah. even though you may never, your YouTube channel might not be very big. It makes you feel very big. And in addition to this, there is the fact that these systems, Facebook, YouTube, all of them addict you to anger. They addict you to anger because the algorithms are designed to 
give you more of whatever you watch the result of which is you get you you watch a, a something that is um, uh, some crazy thing say about well i'm not even going to go into what it is because there'll be an eruption of that's not crazy because we've we've gone crazy we've been driven crazy my friends the visitors i don't know if you know about that side of my life but they said long ago that as the planet declined in its ability to support us, more and more human beings would go mad. And I'm seeing it all around me. I'm literally seeing it all around me. In South Texas, where I'm from, there is literally a spreading terror because students in the local schools in, uh, in Seguin and uh, the other little towns around there are starting to threaten more violence, such as the is similar to the shooting that happened in one of the towns just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, excuse me, where so many kids were needlessly killed. And now uh, there's been just a short time ago, uh, an eruption of gunfire on a school bus. And you know, you have to think that a society that's doing this is going crazy. They're right, it is going crazy. What do we do, Richard? I mean, how do we escape from Maya's palace? Because we're we're chained in here. Well, it's hard. It's hard to do. But the, the good news is, I described you know three basic social forces that are have driven us into stronger ego identification, which is the disruptiveness of global capitalism, uh, enormous inequalities, and technologies you know, separating us from healthy relationships with one another. It happens, I mean, my concern in the book is with conditions under for which people have equal, you know, roughly equal and ample opportunities for psychological and spiritual self-realization. But the forces that are preventing that are forces that certain organized social groups are combating for other reasons. I mean, there are groups trying to for for healthy social reasons, trying to combat inequalities, uh, we you know we've tried to um, you know find equality for women and people of different sexual identities and different races, and there there are groups working on this, and there are lots of groups working to combat the disruptiveness of global capitalism. I mean, some of the most uh, effective for for our purposes to hear would be groups that are promoting more locally self-reliant and diverse economies because a more uh, diverse and self-reliant local economy is buffered against the disruptiveness of global capitalism. So the, the good news is that there are organized groups, typically they're kind of more on the politically progressive side of the, of the aisle, that are trying for other reasons of their own, whether it's social justice or sustainability, to combat the same social forces that are driving us into being more egoistic than is really good for us. Well, you know, when I uh, started really getting deep into the book, I thought to myself, ah, a lefty um, uh, dumping on capitalism. And I thought, you know, uh, that is something I've heard before. And then I thought again, we're coming into a very different, different era than we were in before. An era where growth isn't going to be something we can do. And it's not going to be a matter of choosing anything. It's going to be a matter of nature no longer letting it work. In other words, we literally can't keep expanding. And the caterpillar at that point usually drops off the devastated plant and uh, grows a, a chrysalis and emerges as a butterfly. And without the buzzwords like capitalism and progressivism and all of those things that I think kind of perhaps get in the way a little bit of actual the kind of change we need i have to ask us, us and you the question of how do we transition as the earth compels us 
from a, a world uh, in the developed world. It's already like this pretty much in the undeveloped world, but in the developed world, which isolates us and puts us all on a path to ga gaining more and more material and at all times and makes us angry at anyone who disagrees with us. How do we get off that path and onto a path of survival, which is a, a community-related path? Because we're not, we don't have a choice. This is going to happen anyway. The earth is, the support that we had all of these years is over. Yeah. Okay, give, give us some wisdom here. Uh, uh, I think there's several components to this complicated question. I mean, I, I just want to back up to say that there's a way that my critique is not at all a standard leftist critique of capitalism, because the, the standard critique of capitalism from on the left is always that there's winner winners and losers. And we have to, you know, combat capitalism to uplift the losers. My argument's quite different than that um, because uh, I think there's actually something to it. There is some, there is significant inequality and injustice in the modern world. But I'm not talking about winners and losers because I'm saying, in terms of how uh, the global economy has adversely affected our psychological development, there are no winners. Everybody suffers the um, stunting and distortion of psychological development, which also makes us all more susceptible to a wide variety of, of medical ailments, um, addiction, depression, anxiety, and lots of physical ailments that are uh, become more prevalent because of those mental illnesses. I mean, addiction, you know, is response, plays a major role in leading to obesity and diabetes, for instance. So, um, and then the same forces that are that that are driving egoism and that egoism in the form of insatiability in turn uh, drives the expansion of of the global economy. Those same forces lead to the major macro problems that you know, such as climate change that you've alluded to. Um, now, the first part of your question, I mean, the second part of your question, though, was what can we do about it? And there's things we can do, you know, as individuals and at the local level, and then there's more ambitious things that uh, can down the road happen at the, at the more macro social level. But, you know, as I've already said, I think at the local level, striving to create more locally self-reliant economies that are less dependent on global trade um, is is a, a major step that can be undertaken at the local level without permission or, or resources coming from national government or international institutions. Uh, communities can and do pursue that uh, on their own with their existing resources. In terms of more macro things, I mean, you began a little while ago talking about <clears throat> how the internet and social media um, inflates egos and and uh, takes people into places of great anger. I mean, there, uh, you and I are old enough that we grew up with the internet. Internet and the, you know, if you remember the history of the internet, it, it gets born in the late '60s as a Pentagon project for communication, but in for the first twenty. Uh, well, 25 years of the internet into the mid-1990s, the internet was ex pretty much exclusively an educational and civic medium. And there was no space on it whatsoever for commerce. And in fact, if anybody tried to sell you anything in the internet during those days, you would be ostracized from, from your, whatever internet communities you were part of. And then from the 90s on, all of that went away and the internet became dominantly a, 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 a medium dominated by commerce and the pursuit of profit. And so for instance, yeah. social media are not designed to uh, create healthy, human relationships they're designed to maximize advertising sales well right and the moment that steve jobs i'm not steve jobs uh jeff zuckerberg uh mark discovered zuckerberg. what <laughs> mark zuckerberg is what is his name mark zuckerberg. mark zuckerberg yeah. yeah i'm sorry i they're all they're all sort of bound together in one 
one catastrophic vortex in my mind. Mark Zuckerberg discovered that if you make people mad, you get more clicks. Yeah. That was a, a that was an absolutely watershed moment in the history of modern society. And there I don't think there's any way out of it because except by going cold turkey on the on on the whole thing because uh and you, you don't want to, I've thought of detaching my entire broadcasting and website effort from social media but if i do that then it's going to wither away so i'm very careful with social media i don't put things out there that are designed to infuriate people or confuse them or make them feel like they're they're being somehow robbed or in that's conspiracy theory kind of thing the result of which i have a very a relatively small website compared to what I would have if I was telling a lot of lies. Uh, my wife used to say, the human being loves a lie. And it's very true now. But let's, let's look at something in a slightly different way. Uh, well, before we go on, we have reached the end of the free part of the show, which I now runs 45 minutes instead of a full hour so that we can get more deeply into this without any breaks. So, Free Dreamlanders, I would like to thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.